Welcome to In the Foreground, Conversations on Art and Writing. I am Carol Fowler, your host and director of the Research and Academic Program at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. In this series of conversations, I talk with art historians and artists about what it means to write history and make art and the ways in which making informs how we create not only our world, but also ourselves. In this episode, I speak with Nancy Um, professor of art history at Binghamton University in New York State, whose research explores the Islamic world from the perspective of the coast and around the rims of the Red Sea and Indian Ocean. Nancy describes her experience of conducting fieldwork in Yemen and reflects on the constraints of focusing on an area marked by geopolitical instability. She recounts her decision to focus on bodies of water instead of territories and how this approach destabilizes some of the traditional organizing principles of the discipline, but allows her to pursue global art history on a local scale. Finally, she considers digital art history as a site of access and as part of a dynamic approach to her own work changing over time. So it's interesting to think about the reconfiguration of who one is based on, the, again, these exigencies of their research. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Nancy. It's really nice having you here. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I would just really be curious to know, you know, what led you to studying Islamic architecture at UCLA? How how did you become interested in Islamic architecture as as a field and a discipline and and a career path? Sure. Well, this story is a kind of my origin story in some ways. <laughs> I was a Junior year, uh, I, I did my study abroad uh, semester, not year, at the American University of Cairo. Okay. Yeah, and that wow. was a turning point for me. I you know, the city of Cairo was just this, you know, vibrant, uh, exhausting, exciting city that was unlike any city I'd ever been to. And I was particularly captivated by the old city of Cairo and this idea that you had. Um, all of this living heritage, this monumental living heritage that's really integrated into the modern living city. Yeah. And so I spent all of my free time essentially in the uh, in in Cairo in those in those monuments. And I knew that I wasn't ready to stop. Yeah. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen and where I was going to go from there. But I just kept on going after that. And I ended up in California, which was, you know, I'm an East Coast person. So that was completely <laughs> that. I don't know, maybe L.A. was more foreign to me than Cairo was, but uh, it was a good place for me. And um, a lot of things that happened in my life and my career were really kind of accidental. I went from one thing to the other. I never had this kind of sense of where I want to go, but I knew I couldn't stop. That was the that, that, that was what pushed me forward. I can imagine. When was the last time you were in Cairo? So this is the sad story, right? Is that I was there, so that was 1991. You can do the math to figure out how long, I mean, 30 years now, (laughs) right? And it's been that long since I've been to Cairo. So I left Cairo, I never went back there. But of course, I picked up research in other places. Yeah, of course. I also picked up research in other places that also, you know, ended up kind of coming to stops too. That's kind of a different story. That does bring us to my next question, which is one of my own experience of being an art historian is that there is no preparation for field work or or going abroad or working in archives. And you mentioned that as well. And I, I can imagine it's only more intensified for an architectural historian who's 
on the ground dealing with ground plans and buildings and archives. Um, and so I'd be very curious to hear, you know, what what was it like for you when you first arrived in Yemen? Am I correct that Yemen was really where you cut your teeth in terms of architectural groundwork? Um, what was it like when you arrived in Yemen and, and how did you navigate and, and how did you learn that set of skills on your own? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm really glad to say that you kind of, your experience echoed mine, that I'm not alone in this kind of critique. And, and you know, and I think that there is, I mean, to even kind of pull this back a little bit, a larger critique across the humanities. And yeah. you know, I'm definitely among art historians, but also across the humanities about the way in which we engage in doctoral training, right? And, you know, yeah. the I think the very true and wide-reaching critique that most of the things that art historians actually do, we train them for, and us, ourselves, and each other to do very little, but we actually do, right? And yeah. of course, the, the, you know, the most common critique is that so much, so many of us spend most of our time teaching and in the classroom, and we spend the least amount of time preparing students to actually do that part of their career, which is uh, mm-hmm. such a major part of the work they do. And so the kind of critique in some ways is really just thinking about doctoral education, you know, on, yeah. a, you know, on, a, larger, on a larger scope. And um, uh, in terms of architectural field work, you know, I, I was lucky in that, you know, I did have that experience in Cairo. Uh, so I knew how to, you know, look at a historical building and what to do yeah. when I got in one and, you know, what to photograph. And and that was really fortunate because I don't think that that everyone who kind of gets dropped into the field necessarily has that experience. And so I drew on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I when I got to Shannon, you know, there are just so many things that I wasn't prepared for. For instance, I really did not understand how to work with ruins. And of course, I arrived at my field site all excited. This was the port city of Mocha on the Red Sea and, you know, ready to document this city to find everything was completely destroyed, right? And so I, yeah. whereas I might have been able to work, you know, and I mean, there were a few standing monuments that I um, I did work with intensively, but I didn't know what to do with all of these ruins, these mounds of bricks, you know, uh, yeah. on the ground, right? And there was no preparation for that. Yeah. Um, the question of access is a huge one, right? And yeah. it's one that I think we treat as just this contingency, that, you know, but it is, it affects, you know, precisely Everything. what you're going to, you know, what kind of work you can do. Yeah. And it was interesting because I ended up working on domestic architecture. Mm-hmm. And that made sense for my site because there was a really interesting tradition of vernacular building that people hadn't looked at, um, not just in the city of Mocha, but across up and down the Red Sea. And uh, so that that was very fortuitous. Because I was a woman, I was able to go into houses and spend time with families. And it, was, it would be very interesting when I'd be traveling with some of my male colleagues. And, you know, not surprising, the families would be, it would tell me, you know, you can come in, but that guy, he's going to stay outside, right? You know, and I, yeah. I kind of saw this, um, uh, I realized this kind of opening that I had, but I hadn't planned that, you know, it was a kind yeah. of fortuitous. And of course, that time that I spent in those houses was so important because it helped me to understand the functional patterns that they allowed, right? And so. Right. You know, so so that whole question of access, I think, is really, really important. If I had kind of naively decided I wanted to do a um, a dissertation on religious architecture uh, as a non-Muslim, I would not mm-hmm. have had access to those sites, right? And so these kinds of things that are, you know, treated as secondary are so absolutely key to 
are intellectual questions, right? Yeah. And no one also, you know, told me that, you know, whenever you are supposed to go, whenever you go out to um, uh, any expedition outside of the capital city of Sana'a in Yemen, that you have to go under military convoy. And so, you know, the idea of working, first of all, with a team, you know, yeah. I, I don't think any of us are trained uh, and really kind of just, uh, about how we work with each other, right? Even uh, in, you know, basic yeah. collaboration, working with a team um, was something that I had no experience with. But working with a team that included, you know, military. Yeah, I mean, members. how does a graduate student even hire a military convoy to? Yeah. So, yeah. So it's interesting because for anyone who works outside of Sanaa, which uh-huh. you know all, m- many of us did, yeah. whenever we'd leave the capital, you get out to certain checkpoints, okay. and um, you know no one can leave those checkpoints without uh, leaving with a convoy. Okay. And so um, you know those were, I will say. Those were during the days when when research was very open in Yemen. Yeah. You know, I did not realize yeah. when I was there in the '90s and the early 2000s that that was a great time to be working there. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, now none of that is possible. And I didn't understand that the situation would deteriorate so quickly. Um, and uh, so that was when things were easy. I would say that was when things were were very um, uh, were I think the most promising for researchers. Um, and, you know, so, uh, you know, there were those challenges, right, that that I wasn't prepared for at all. And it's, you know, one could say as well that you can't prepare a graduate student for all of that, certainly. But I do think having more intensive conversations all, for all of us, maybe just doing a better job of communicating the whole experience of what it means to be an art historian. Yeah. I just feel like, you know, I wish that I had had um, you know, uh, I had heard more of that before I went out in the field and before I got my first tenure track job and before I, uh, you know, did so many of the things that I, that I was charged with doing um, rather than just kind of figuring it out on the ground. Right? Yeah. Well, one of the things you've talked about is a hidden curriculum in art history and, and you've field work is one of these, but, it, um, but there are other things too. And I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that or some of the things, the other things that you feel aren't necessarily transparently conveyed within a graduate education that, that one has to catch up with. Yeah. This idea of the hidden curriculum um, in art history is something that, uh, again, I don't think we talk about, I mean, we talk about it behind closed doors. We don't necessarily talk about it in the space of the seminar room or I don't yeah. hear it, you know, discussed or taken up um, in, you know, our uh, sessions in CA necessarily. Um, and to me, that's like the substance, right? That's yeah. um, kind of the questions of what it means and what it takes to, uh to embark on, but also sustain a career as an yeah. academic, and particularly in the field of art history, right? Um, and so, you know, questions for me, and again, some curricula, I think, were very much oriented around um, museum practices, but but you really kind of, like, for instance, understanding how collections are put together, right, yeah. in museums. With archives, of course, you know, I did jump into archives without any training in paleography, <laughs> or without anyone sitting down with me and telling me, this is this is the strategy that we use to put together a finding aid, yeah. right? So I'll use a finding aid, but not really understand what this document is and what its logic was, right? And I think those kinds of you know questions are really, really important. Um, and then there's all of those kind of 
social expectations, right? Um, that, uh, you know, that we have and people say, oh, well, you never do that or you don't do that or this is professional, that's not professional. And of course, there's an implicit elitism, right? Yeah. A lot of those expectations. Um, and um, I will say that, you know, once you kind of get into that world, then, you know, it takes a lot to interrogate them. And in this way, I think I've drawn a lot on a lot of younger scholars yeah. who um, have helped me to kind of deconstruct what I accepted implicitly, uh, you know, as the way this is just the way we work, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this is just the way it's done. Um, and so I've been, you know, um, uh, I think that, um, you know, turning to some of these critical voices, these emerging voices is really, really important. Um, you know, I think a lot of times in in academia, we fall upon, again, these patterns of who do you turn to, right? And it's inevitably going to be that you turn to the most senior person in your field. You draw on their experience, right? You know, and in this kind of hierarchical idea of mentorship, it's you know, longstanding. It's not, um, and it's really not interrogated. Um, but what if we were to, you know, kind of look at mentorship networks that were uh, you know, maybe vertical in the other direction, right? Being yeah. by junior scholars, right? And emerging scholars and graduate students who actually, you know, who need to tell us what they're experiencing. We need to listen, of course, as well, um, to really understand the changing shape of the field that I don't think um, all of us are, you know, have reckoned with, right? Because, um, you know, things are happening fast. Scholarly landscape is changing. So, so um, yeah, so I think that's a really important question. And it's one that I, I came to understand really late after yeah. I had kind of trained myself to then, you know, understand and kind of have internalized that hidden curriculum um, and um, trying and having to hold myself back from reproducing those expectations of others. Yeah, it's true. It does seem like there's a way in which, um, at least when I was in graduate school, I think what you're saying in terms of finding a senior mentor, and I, I kind of wasn't even really necessarily aware of that. And, um, and the, the ways in which it is so social, because I think you, you spend so much time alone reading and writing and, and you're meant to produce this singular document with singular ideas and, um, the social aspects of it and, and the ways in which so many things happen out of friendships or happen out of collaborative projects um, or happen out of conversations at conferences. I think so much of that was, I, I was completely oblivious to it at least. And it does seem like now there's another possible model emerging in which younger scholars who, who are more engaged in collaborative projects or who are more engaged in kind of supporting one another or supporting even more junior scholars is, is allowing for a different kind of sociality in art history, maybe that doesn't depend on this model of someone younger, really, really depending upon someone older and more senior to write them letters and to, to help them secure a career. I would hope because that model does not seem to <laughs> be sustainable. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. And I think a lot of, you know, even people who are senior to me will say, you know, I don't know how to necessarily advise someone how to get a first book contract in this environment, even if that person has published seven books, right? Because yeah. they were operating under such different circumstances, a completely different world of academic publishing, right? Um, and so, you know, what I, what I think I ended up doing, and again, this was not by design, it was just because I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't necessarily 
you know, find those senior mentors. So I ended up kind of building a network for myself that was much more about people who were at the same stage that I was at. Um, And it's interesting because then you kind of move up the ranks together um, and then you provide the support for each other. And um, that has been so valuable for me. And so kind of thinking about a horizontal network of mentoring that can be equally as powerful as those more hierarchical ones, I think is really important to remind people of. And then also to think about um, the empowerment, I would say, of definitely emerging scholars who have um, embraced new forms of scholarly expression, who have some of them just incredible profiles on social media and huge followings and are able to send messages that reach completely different and definitely much bigger audiences than um, those of us who are still publishing in very traditional means can, right? Um, And, uh, you know, of course, we've got to get to a place in which we understand what kind of validity that work, you know, should receive, right? And I think we're not, we're definitely far from that right now. But um, I'm really enthusiastic and I'm like excited by those voices. Um, and that I think that they see in general that collaboration is key. And, you know, again, I came to collaboration really late in my career, right after I finished my first book. And when I first started to kind of co-edit things with people who I had affinities with, Um, and again, not having received any mentorship about what it means to collaborate and how you find a partner and what makes a good partner, right? Because a good partner is not always someone who you share intellectual interests with. It's true. That's really true. You know, it might be about, you know, communication modes, you know, how, how, and how often you want to respond to email and how often you want to consult with each of those kinds of things that, um, that I think are so important. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 sometimes I worry that I get too kind of like process oriented or practical, but I, I, I just love these conversations about yeah. the way we work today, right. And kind of taking stock of, you know, what that really looks like, because I don't think we've necessarily, you know, um, I don't think we've, accepted some of the changes uh, that the field, I think, is barreling forward toward um, that uh, that some of us, I think, are kind of, you know, dragging our feet on a little bit or maybe, you know, have our heads in the sand. You know, I know that there have been periods when I've definitely had my head in the sand like that. So, yeah, well, it's hard because also even though individuals are barreling for- forward towards this, I mean, I think also such a large part of this is is the critique of the in, um, the instability currently in doing a PhD in the humanities, the lack of jobs, um, and and so I think that and, and the lack of infra, in, infrastructure within art history and departments and museums um, to support the amount of PhDs that are currently coming out, and, and so I think bundled up with all of this is also a lot of critique about current infrastructure that I think understandably no one person or department or, or even collective, I think can necessarily figure it out. Yeah, Um, no, I, you know, and I I think, you know, I've been working on this project with these dissertations and I, you know, I I don't want to kind of uh, jump over to that, but it's relevant because it just was this moment in which I, you know, I kind of looked to that dissertation roster that that CA has published for now 60 years, right? And I first went there to ask some very pointed questions and I kind of saw it as what I'll call a structured data set, right? Because it has this format that has is consistent. Um, and I knew that if I were to apply some kind of 
you know, some analysis to it, some interpretation to it, I would just begin to see patterns, right? Patterns yeah. that I think I've sensed, I think we've all sensed, but we never saw really kind of quantified or concretized, right, in any way. Historiography um, by numbers, is that what you call it, I think? Um, yeah. Oh, well, um, I, 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 I kind of, I can't remember, I've used some different terms for, I think I, I talked about it as a kind of descriptive statistics, which yeah. is sort of a, a term you never, you never hear in art history. Um, but, uh, but, you know, so that project just kind of, it kept on spinning out, like it started off very, you know, very small, and then yeah. continued to build. Um, and we have a new piece that's coming out that I've um, co-authored with Emily Hagen, who is a uh, PhD student at Penn State. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, we just want to make sure that we all understand what the structure has looked like. And you know, asking yeah. really basic questions like, you know, where are the major sites of, of production of knowledge, right? Meaning, yeah. you know, the major sites where, where PhDs have been generated in, um, in the U.S. and Canada. And again, I think we, we know that, but we haven't kind of seen it, you know, put out in clearer terms. And even questions like, what does it mean to be a prolific advisor? Does that mean advising five students or 10 students or 20. Yeah. It turns out that it's more like 70, 60 or 70. I was 70, fascinated actually. to learn Linda Nochlin was, was the most prolific advisor over the past century. Is that correct? That is from, from our analysis. From your data but, set. Yes, but not just the most prolific, the most prolific by like twofold. I yeah. mean, that was what was so amazing. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, you know, by, by our calendars, I think about 64 students, but we know that that falls short, that that's not, you know, a complete accounting. Yeah. Um, and that others who, you know, had very, you know, huge cadres of students that they were advising like 30 or 40 or, you know, or that even 20, that there's actually a very small number of individuals who advise at least 20 dissertations. And so it just gives you a yeah. sense, right, um, to kind of think about, you know, these superlatives that we use all the time and, and um, you know, uh, quantifying them is not a way of pinning them down. It's just a way of understanding, you know, what, what does this look like if we just, you know, um, plot it out a different way. And uh, in some ways, that project was meant to you know, it's meant to do a lot of things, but it's also, you know, art history has a kind of non-congenial relationship with numbers. Yeah. Right. In general. Right. And with quantitative methods. And so this whole question of, you know, what our relationship to digital humanities will be moving forward. It's definitely, you know, it will be a rocky one and it should be one. Right. Because we're always going to be trying to seek out subtlety between some of these kind of measures. Um, But uh, but, you know, I think one has to also realize that when you're working with, you know, these kind of quantitative, let's say, expressions, um, that you don't use them because you think that they are like ironclad as opposed to the softer forms of reasoning that hum- humanities scholars normally use, that they're just another soft form of reasoning, right, that you put yeah. out with all these other kinds of, you know, interpretive um, interpretations um, that, uh, you know, have all these, you know, that are textured in these ways and problematic yeah. in these various ways. And so, yeah, so, you know, so, so that, so I've been thinking a lot about this question about the structure mainly of our, of doctoral education about art history um, through that particular vehicle of that roster. It's just one place to look at you know, what's kind of what's happened with our field what's happening with our field and um, what its future might be. Um, yeah. 
Well, I was so struck I when I saw the graphs and I saw that actually the year I finished my dissertation in 2012 was this year in which there was this explosion of dissertations. I think it might be the year in which there was the most dissertations finished according to the data. Um, and it was so striking to me because I'd started my PhD kind of right before the financial crisis. And, you know, we came in and there were all these jobs and everyone was getting jobs. And I was at Princeton and they had these fancy, you know, open bar cocktail parties. And then... <laughs> <laughs> like cheese. So the past for a lot of institutions. And then 2008 happened, and you know the parties stopped, and um, and the jobs dried up, and uh, and it was just so interesting to see that no no one had ever said to me, oh, you, I, you know, there were so many reasons, and it, it was a complex interlocking set of reasons, but, but also no one had said, oh, well, you also, you know, you can't get a job because you finish your dissertation in this, you know, in this period in which there are all these PhDs coming out, you know, still recovering from a financial crisis. And so it was, it was interesting to see, to see it pictorially presented, I would have to say. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I, I, the editors at uh, CA Reviews that we've been working with have been really terrific. And they kind of wanted us to draw further conclusions, right? Like that, yeah. that, that drop definitely is related, I'm certain, to those, uh, to that moment, right? And yeah. what happens after 2008. Um, and, and, you know, we didn't go that far because we kind of figured yeah, put this out and, and, yeah. and, um, and, and have colleagues uh, do with it what they, what they want to do with it and make of it yeah. what they will and hopefully take it further. Um, but you can definitely see that as this peak and, you know, uh, and then a fall. Yeah. And it's interesting because we did not crunch the data for 2019 and 20, but yeah. um, but the numbers are, are they drop a great deal. Yeah. Actually, uh, we know from 2019, which may have been also because reporting was during COVID, so that's probably yeah. you know that will be part of it as well. Um, but then you know uh, the question is you know we're kind of on this downward slope. Where do we plateau? Do we come back up again? And you know I I really don't know, but I do want to know. It's been interesting to look at those, um, how steep the trend line moves in both directions, I would say, because we were on yeah. such a kind of upward slope up until 2012-13. But, um, uh, you know, I, it, it moved in the other direction without question. Yeah. No, it's it's a great project. It's a really exciting project. Well, I, I'd like to, um, you know, change topics a little bit. And so you've also received recently this big Getty grant connecting art histories with Prita Meyer, which is really exciting. Um, and, and focused on the, I mean, you can speak better than I can about what it's focused on, but one thing that it draws me to is, is a question I had about your research. And, and what I really appreciate about your research is that, is this dedication to this, the ways in which you've really focused on this one geographic area and really very specific area um, and expanded these huge histories from it beyond beyond Mocha or beyond the port city or, or beyond this. And, and I think one of that re those reasons is that you've really thought about it oceanically in terms of these bodies of water, both the Indian Ocean and, and the Red Sea. And so I would just kind of be curious to hear, um, you know, both about the Getty Project and how it came about, um, but then also even more about what it what it means to you to be an architectural historian who's cited more in relationship to bodies of water instead of land, perhaps. Um, and then also kind of the specificity of these bodies of water as opposed to, say, Mediterranean, which is so um, ensconced within the discipline of art history. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you so much for taking us in that direction. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I think the first thing to start out by saying, which is important to just ground us in what's changed as well yeah. in the past decades is, you know, when I got started, so that was the 90s. Um, you know, we were talking about bodies of water the way that we do today, right? Yeah. And so really over this past 20, 30 years, there's been a shift. Um, and I will say historians, you know, in the 90s, definitely were talking about the Indian Ocean, um, but in very different ways, right, than they do today. Um, but art historians were not talking about that ocean. They were definitely talking about the Mediterranean, but not the Indian Ocean. Yeah. And so there was a handful of us who were starting at that time to think about the Indian Ocean as a space of visual exchange and also understanding, particularly before the arrival of Europeans, because there's such kind of uneven textual documentation, how important material culture is yeah. for the study of that particular body of water. And so, um, you know, there was Elizabeth Lamborn, who's in the UK, uh, Alka Patel, who teaches at uh, UC Irvine, uh, me, uh, Preeta Meyer as well. And, you know, all of us, if you think about the group, so uh, Elizabeth and Alka were working really in the South Asian area, right? I was trained as an Islamicist, Preeta as an Africanist, right? And so we're kind of in some ways saddled also by the assumptions and the frameworks and the uh, kind of patterns and the habits of our own disciplines, right? Kind yeah. of, you know, so, so Indian Ocean Art History has, has always been kind of cobbled together between these fields, all of which in many ways kind of sit at a, an edge of art history as well, right? You know, yeah. as these kind of areas in the global South. Um, and it's been really amazing to see because definitely within the past five years, but maybe within the past 10, how the Indian Ocean now is, I think, taken really quite seriously as an art historical space. And that's yeah. pretty recent. And so that's exciting. Lots of company now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's also, I would say it's gratifying too, right? Because, you know, we've been trying to kind of send out this message, right? Yeah. But the question is, then how do you do it? Right. And, um, you know, admittedly, I started out, you know, with one foot, like firmly on maybe even both feet firmly on land by studying yeah. a port city in a particular place. And, uh, you know, the historian uh, Francesca Trivellato, she, mm -hmm. I think, speaks really beautifully about this idea of global history on a small scale. Right. Mm -hmm. you know, the idea yeah. that you can take this unit, this port city, and through it, you can understand this world of connections. And um, in some ways, like that was as far as I was willing to go. I mean, the Indian Ocean is a big ocean. <laughs> I'm not a good swimmer, I will tell you as well. So I just stayed on land at the beginning. Beginning. Yeah. Um, but then it propelled me forward to begin to take on like admittedly much more intrepid kinds of connections. And so some of my recent pieces have been, um, you know, really itinerant, you know, kind of taking us from the mountains of Ethiopia all the way to the shores of Japan. And, you know, for instance, I'm working on this piece right now um, about a Yemeni coin that was found in Rhode Island. And, you know, for me, North America, I'm like, oh, no, this is, you know, really far afield. Um, and it's a 17th century coin that was yeah. actually, you know, very, uh, is publicized a, a great deal a few a few months ago. And so I've been writing about that. And so, so um, you know, what this has meant is kind of really just destabilizing questions of you know the role that geography plays in art history right and of course yeah. we're always we all feel grounded within our spaces and in our times um and so i mean it's you know so i feel kind of remarkably grounded by a set of maritime relationships but they have sent me into places that have been really unfamiliar right and so that you know that's always a challenge of this kind of work um and uh you know the other oceans have grounded us right you know in terms of thinking about um 
about connections. I remember, you know, way back when, when, again, you know, getting back into grad school, thinking when I first got into this, the only studies that I really had were ones like Deborah Howard's on the Mediterranean, right? right? Uh, You know, those were ones that gave me an inkling of what direction I could go in, Mm -hmm. understanding that the Indian Ocean was going to pose different problems and different kinds of issues, just because of its scale, but also, you know, you're dealing with uh, you know, uh, places that are remarkably understudied yeah. also compared to the Mediterranean and also underdocumented, yeah. right? Um, so, so yeah, so, th- so th- there's, you know, kind of drawing from, but also understanding where you needed to diverge from those traditions. Um, and the last thing I'll say about the Indian Ocean is that the corpus is, you know, um, it, it's, it's a different corpus, right? You know, I, I'm trained as an Islamicist and I come out of that tradition, but my objects are not those objects that fill the, you know, touted halls of celebrated institutions. I don't have these beautiful pages from Persian manuscripts or these yeah. exquisite objects. You know, I have things like old, you know, Dutch gin bottles and, you know, crates that used to hold cloves and, you know, uh, very inexpensive coffee cups that, you know, may have come from afar, but were not luxury items, right? Yeah. And um, and so that corpus is one that, that it's, you know, I think it's more challenging to put forward because, you know, it doesn't, it's, you've got to do a little bit more work to, um, to, uh, to explain its value. Right. Um, And so, yeah, so those have been some of the challenges, you know, in working with the Indian Ocean. Um, But I should also just say a few things about, about the project, Um, the Getty project, which just, um, it's really a project that is focusing on bringing together a community of scholars who work on the Indian Ocean, but who are largely based around the Indian Ocean. And I think yeah. this is, you know, a really important development in the field. There's a lot of really prominent, amazing scholars who have a great platform, who work from the U.S., from Europe. Um, and uh, I think we all acknowledge that we play this outsized role that we don't deserve and that we want to hear yeah. more from colleagues who are based um in Indian Ocean spaces. Um, And so the Getty program is really about um, not only providing a platform for some of these scholars that, you know, that might allow them to um, have a wider audience outside of their regional communities, but also to connect them to each other, right? And so uh, we have uh, just selected our 15 participants um, who come from, I think, Ten different countries who are, you know, doing really amazing work across the Indian yeah. Ocean, and we're going to convene them on Monday for the first time oh, as a group. Yes, yes, yes. So I've asked everyone, you know, we have this uh, this presentation. Everyone's just going to drop in a slide, and we're going to all kind of work through our slides and, you know, kind of introduce ourselves through through uh, through a few images and objects. Um, and uh, and I'm really excited to kick it off. Oh, because, that's so exciting. Yeah, but I will say as well, you know, that the project was planned before COVID. So it was planned to be a travel project um, and that's all still pending, right? About how we're going to manage that international dimension um, and that dimension that really hinged upon all of us moving together as a group from the Indian Ocean, around the Indian Ocean. um, You know, I'm hoping that we can do that. What are the specific historical circumstances within the Indian Ocean that that make it such that as as you articulate it's it's emerged much more as a site of studying material culture than some of these um 
than than other areas? I mean, what are those specific historic circumstances? Yeah, well, you know, I I think that one has to. Well, well, let me start by saying there is actually a critique that those of us who work on the Indian Ocean <laughs> focus too much on trade. Okay, because, you know, one, one could, you know, certainly, t- you know, there's lots of scholars who are very interested in, obviously, religious connections and movements and law yeah. um, and, and, you know, other kind of larger overarching issues. Um, but the right. critique is that so many of us are really focused on trade. And I'm definitely one of those people who is definitely <laughs> focused on trade, right? Yeah. Um, and even if there is this often off-repeated misconception that the Indian Ocean trade was largely a luxury trade. You hear that very mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very, uh, and it is not, not the case, right, that there's lots of different kinds of goods that moved across that body of water. Um, we're dealing, you know, and a lot of them was with mundane items, right? You know, yeah. sacks of spices, uh, you know, uh, c- ceramics, not, of, not all of which were these exemplars of porcelain production, for instance, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of times we're dealing with bulk goods that we know were fairly inexpensive of items, right? Even those pieces of crock porcelain that arrived all the way in Amsterdam, these were not expensive items. They were mass produced. Uh, They, you know, were dashed off in many cases, right? You know, in terms of their uh, execution. Um, And so um, this, you know, for me, at least, not to speak for myself, because again, you know, there's um, a lot of different impulses, I would say, within the field, which is the exciting thing that's happening right now. Lots of different new kinds of work, work that's overturning and critiquing the early work. But, um, uh, you know, I guess I kind of came from a place, and this happens to be because I was working in the 90s, when a lot of artists weren't thinking about the Indian Ocean, but historians were, where I was responding to economic historians who were, you know, I would just kind of joke that, you know, you have a whole book about, you know, the trade of textiles, not a single picture in the book, first of all, right? (laughs) And you have textile historians who will be writing about, you know, they they could tell you the price of a textile for every year of the 18th century. But if they were wearing that textile on their back, they would not necessarily recognize it, right? And so in some ways, my work was originally a kind of response to that work, um, just with a simple proclamation that trade is a material process. These are things that are being exchanged. And even economic historians, especially economic historians, need to understand that kind of physicality because it matters. It matters how the ship was packed because that, you know, that had an impact on how much money you could actually make from your cargo, right? Because, you know, and so so these kinds of tangible material aspects um, very much drove me to, again, respond to those economic historians in that way, you know, and I kind of made the same critique with architecture saying, you know, you have all of this discussion about trade and economic systems, but where was the transaction happening? Like, where in the city, where were they, where were they sitting? You know, and these kinds of questions that to me seem so fundamental, but had never been asked. And so, yeah. so, so this is why we kind of get into that mundane world of, you know, objects of trade, which were not luxury objects necessarily, as well as spaces of trade which were not the monumental buildings they happened to be more often the um the warehouse right yeah. you know or the customs house um and unfortunately buildings that usually haven't lasted through time to the extent that yeah. some of their monumental counterparts have so um so that's why we're, we're you know at least i'm grounded in the mundane but I, you know there's been a lot of interesting work and i've been trying to engage in some of this as well on gift exchange which kind of yeah. brings us into some very interesting objects but those were quite unique examples we have yeah. to remember that those were not constituting the bulk of the cargo that was carried yeah, on the ship. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, and it is. I remember I, I was in Cochin 
um, and it was for the first coaching biennale and they, um, and they hosted it within the old Dutch trade warehouses. You, you know, they're never talked about in art history, but the local communities in Cochin were really thinking about how, how to take over these spaces and, and critique the trade that had formed the city. And, but it was just so interesting as a historian when, when you're based in Amsterdam. You can imagine then for someone like me who was trained as an Islamicist <laughs> and I chose this dissertation topic on Yemen and I had studied Arabic, which was my yeah. major, you know, language. And of course, in the, in, in the field of Islamic, you know, the, the languages that you know or you learn are going to really kind of delimit what you're going to work on. Right. And yeah. so, um, so because I was, you know, working within the Arabic speaking world, Yemen was a very natural place to go. But then to learn, like, basically, as I'm finishing my exams, oh, I need to learn Dutch. <laughs> And, you know, that was like, oh, no, right? You know, I thought that I would pick up, you know, Persian or, Persian or Turkish I, yeah. you know, uh, as, as a second language. But I realized very late on that I need to sit in those VOC archives, right? Yeah. Um, and so, the, the, you know, that is this kind of other interesting side of it. And this question, which is, you know, again, a question of great debate among Indian Ocean people about those who rely, you know, a great deal on European sources and you know, yeah. kind of what that looks like in terms of the writing of those histories. But that was a very interesting turn for me. And so I've, I got, you know, just to kind of connect with you a little bit on this, yeah. I, you know, so I had this, you know, so the fact is that I, you know, I spent as much time in The Hague as I have in Yemen, actually, to my research, right, over the years. <laughs> and, and that was, you know, all kind of accidental, you know, and every day I would be sitting in The Hague and of course it'd be raining. <laughs> so cold, be, this is not what I bargained for. This is not what I bargained for, right? Um, and then, of course, after it became really difficult to travel to Yemen, um, yeah. I, I realized that, um I was fortunate in that that kind of fieldwork career that I had aspired to, that I thought was going to be my whole career, right? Um, and I realized that that career, uh, you know, uh, probably is over. You know, I don't, I mean, yeah. I can't, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't see into the future, but I know that it's it's not going to be, you know, it's been stopped for a while and I, I don't see it picking up anytime soon. But I was really grateful to have those, those records. Um, yeah. And, you know, so I find myself kind of dabbling back and forth into the VOC and kind of, intersecting with what I think has become extremely vibrant in terms of like thinking about uh, uh, this um, much broader expanded Dutch art history, right. Yeah. You know, and uh, with uh, some very, really interesting um, recent publications, especially Claudia Swans, which I haven't gotten to read yet, but I'm really excited mm -hmm. to. Um, so, yeah. So it's interesting to think about the reconfiguration of who one is based on the, again, these exigencies of their research, um, you know, and the fact that the Dutch just, kept like ridiculously detailed records <laughs> and just tried to make it work in Yemen, even though it really was not, <laughs> it didn't, it didn't end up very well for them there actually. So. Well, that also gets me to kind of one of, one of my final questions, which is addressing the ways in which um, due to the current political situation within Yemen, you, you aren't able to access it um, physically uh, on the ground, but it, it does seem my sense from reading your work is that, that inaccessibility has led you more and more into the field of digital art history and thinking about it as a site of access and, and, and not just um, celebrating it as a site of access, but also critiquing that and thinking about the limits of that access and the ways in which structures of power, uh, while we might think it makes everything accessible, um, it, it doesn't. I, I was really struck by your discussion of using VCR technology and, and thinking you would be able to land in, in your old 
site of uh, Mocha and, and you weren't. Um, and it just reminded me so much in terms of things I've thought about, about, you know, why some, some places are made UNESCO heritage monuments and, and some aren't. Um, and so I, I would just kind of like to hear about how, how you've come to digital art history and, and the ways in which you think about accessibility within digital art history. Sure. No, it's a great question. And it's like, you know, it's funny how one looks back and kind of maps out choices that they made. They always seem much more kind of logical when you look back. You're like, oh, this, you know, these choices made sense. I think they were a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of unstructured on the ground as they were happening. But um, but it is interesting because anyone who works in an area that has certain precarities, like Yemen, like Syria yeah. today, uh, like a place like Iran where access is, you know, not always, uh, you know, not always expected and can um, yeah. be extremely difficult you know we've always had to think about these questions again as part of our research program right we couldn't just have this beautiful idea about what we wanted to work on we always had to had to kind of think about what was possible and I think COVID has made all of our colleagues understand what that feels like a little bit which you know I just think I think it's a good thing to you yeah. know open up that discussion like oh what would my career look like if I could not go to the Bibliothèque Nationale this summer right <laughs> and so um so the, I think the discussion about that I, I probably will change now yeah. based on the experience that everyone has had um and so uh you know it became really clear to me uh you know well first of all I should say you know I, I had wanted to go back to, I had been trying to go back to Yemen uh, for a while, but you know, things happen. Yeah. It's happened in my life. I had two kids at the same time, <laughs> which, you know, was, uh, yeah. you, you know, kind of slowed things down. I had to finish a book to get tenure. You know, there are these things that, you know, you know how it goes, right? We, yeah. we, our lives get in the way of our careers in very yeah. inconvenient ways. Um, and when I was finally ready to go back, things had already started to fall apart there. And I knew that research would become really difficult. And it was um, around that time as well, because it was before the war when I was uh, one of the uh, scholars and residents at the Getty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I uh, saw all the digital projects that they were doing. And I would tell you, I was really in shock because I had not been up to date at all with the move toward digital art history. If you would ask me what digital art history was at that point, you know, and I'm just talking about, you know, seven, eight years ago. Yeah. I would have said, oh, you mean like when they scan pictures, scan slides? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I really had no, I was not, uh, you know, I had kind of tuned out so many of the changes that had been um, taking shape in the field in really amazing ways. And so, so it was really kind of at that moment when I started to realize that I needed to be thinking about technology in ways that were much more um, uh, deliberate mm-hmm. and purposeful. And that uh, if I was going to think about like, you know, working as an art historian for the next 20 or 30 years, right? And who knows how long this will, how long I have in front of me, but, but what would give me that longevity, right? Um, you know, of understanding that, you know, your work, I think, you know, uh, that the scholars that I meet who have long careers, the ones whose work has changed over time, tend to be, in my view, the ones who are the most satisfied and the, and the, and the happiest, I will yeah. say. Right. And so it's not to say, you know, that, that, you know, there's some scholars who have these amazing careers where they work on really like essentially one topic, but they just do this kind of intensive, terrific work on that topic for their whole careers. But I, I just will say that I think that that satisfaction comes when you've got that dynamism, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just started to get into these practices. I had to upskill a great deal and I'm still upskilling. Like, you know, my joke is that I'm literally in a workshop or some kind of training 
every month at least if, you know <laughs> I don't always finish them you know the classic MOOCs do it two starts and it doesn't finish but, you know, but I'm always trying to kind of you know open this up because yeah. I, I think it's it's just never ending right and you know because of the fast-paced way in which technology changes um that you, know, you always have to kind of be chasing something unfortunately and I, I think once you get comfortable with the fact that you're just always going to be you know 10 steps behind, behind. Yeah, then it makes then you just can 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 accept it, and so so yeah, so that was a turning point for me, and I'm um and I'm really uh, I will say I'm excited about what that future looks like. Um, I haven't figured out exactly like what it's going to look like for me. Like for instance, a lot of people who are you know really um kind of sitting at the front edge of digital art history are involved in like a major digital project. I am not right. I'm just mm-hmm. kind of doing certain things. I've integrated digital methods into my research. I'm teaching a lot, which I think is really important. And again, in, in this discussion that we've been having about thinking about doctoral education and the future of the field and, yeah. um, you know, and to me, that's really meaningful. I've been teaching students, but also colleagues, right. And kind of thinking about how all of us are going to kind of move into um, a future in which technology is just going to be much more central. But yeah. at the same time, I do think that we need to be having larger conversations precisely about Again, just practice, right? I mean, I think that we haven't had the discussion, or maybe we haven't, tell me if I've missed it, but about, you know, really what a digital asset is for an art historian. What we're supposed to do with all these things that now sit in our hard drives and are poorly labeled and we can't remember where we found it from and are, you know, at different resolutions in terms of images and objects and that have messy metadata, you know, um, and uh, Emily Pugh just wrote this really great article about, um, you know, making the case that, that institutes, institutions, cu- cultural institutions, museums, archives have outpaced what art historian, the questions we're asking. Like they are yeah. moving forward technologically in these amazingly ambitious projects. And we're, we're not there I, as researchers. And I thought it was a very yeah. provocative statement. And I, I completely agree with her, right? And yeah. so, I think, so I think these are really interesting conversations to have. So, so, so I guess the answer, the short answer to the, uh, the, or rather the short conclusion to this very long answer to your question is that absolutely in these precarious areas, we're going to have to depend um, on uh, digitized materials digitized materials um, and digital resources and methods are opening up all of these new arenas for us but we do need to step back and just you know have some serious discussions about method about um even just practice and process and if I can just add one more thing and I know I'm going on um, there's this great article that I've just you know I recommend to everyone it's by this uh Canadian historian his name is Mm -hmm. Ian Milligan Okay. And he's made this case that all historians are digital historians now. That right. no one sits in archives for nine months anymore um, right. and pours over documents. And I think, we're, you know, we're, the same thing yeah. has happened with us as well, right? That you yeah. go in for five days, you take yeah. 10,000 images, which of course none of us do a good job at labeling or cataloging <laughs> while we're in the archive. Know, we're just, just on your phone. <laughs> yeah, we're snapping like crazy. And then we go home yeah. and then we start working through those documents. And, yeah. um, and you know, what's, what's really important about Milligan's argument is he's not trying to say, oh, this is a lament, look at what we've lost. He's just saying, we have to come to terms with what this change in practice means. Yeah. And then ask ourselves how this is going to affect the interpretational work of art history, mm-hmm. because it will without question. We yeah. know that practice and process is always going to have some impact um, on uh, where we end up, uh, right? And so yeah. I've been really taken by that. Um, it's a very simple argument in some ways, but it's it's, it's one that, again, I don't think that we have reckoned with yeah. at all in the field. It's very true. 
Thank you for listening to In the Foreground, conversations on art and writing. For more information about this episode and links to the books, articles, and artworks discussed, please consult clarkart.edu slash rap slash podcast. The Clark Art Institute sits on the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people. We acknowledge the tremendous hardship of their forcible removal from these homelands by colonial settlers. A federally recognized nation, they now reside in Wisconsin and are known as the Stockbridge Wensee community. As we learn, speak, and gather here at the Clark, we pay honor to their ancestors, past and present, and to future generations by committing to build a more inclusive and equitable space for all. This program was produced by Caitlin Woolsey and myself, with music by Light Chaser, editing by John Boutine, and additional support provided by Jesse Centivan.